Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Now that we are in the middle of summer, I am already looking for winter to come. Summer sports are exciting, but these days, as the temperatures just go up and up, I think about all the exciting winter sports, snowboarding, skiing. Many people enjoy these sports, especially if they like speed. But a while back, I came across a surprising fact. I found out that there is a professional skier out there that is visually impaired. What, you ask? How can they ski down a hill when they are not able to see in front of them? This is the first thought that came to my mind. There is a professional skier named Jerem Yang living in Korea who came in fourth place in the 2014 Sochi Olympic for the disabled and won a silver medal in the 2015 Canada Panorama Resort Alpine Ski Competition. She was born premature at only seven months and was diagnosed with retinopathy of prematurity in her left eye, causing loss of vision. She is only able to see objects right in front of her with her right eye. The way skiers that are visually impaired, like Mrs. Yang, are able to ski down a hill is because they have a guide runner that acts as their eyes for them. Guide runners help the visually impaired athletes by skiing in front of them, guiding them through the course by their movements and the sounds that they make. There are many examples of guide runners in different fields of sports. For example, the 100-meter dash and the marathon also have guide runners for the visually impaired to follow. And even the sport of golf has a guide that coaches the athletes as they play through the course. The guide runners in skiing are especially equipped with a microphone and headset attached to their helmets so that they can guide the visually impaired athletes through the course. They are not able to say much through such a fast race, so they guide the athletes by just using the words stop and go. The visually impaired athletes need to follow every move and directions of these guide runners quickly during the competition for them to be safe and successful throughout the competition. What do all of you believe is the most important factor for these visually impaired skiers to be successful in the competition? That's right. It's the partnership that these athletes have with their guide runners. It's the partnership and trust between the athlete and the guide runner that is the most important and often deciding factor when it comes to success in the competition. The part of Mrs. Yang's story that surprised me the most was how she was able to take the first step to becoming a professional skier. I could never become a professional skier with even both my eyes functioning perfectly because of the fast speeds. I wonder what went through her mind as she decided to take that first step as a professional skier. I'm sure that she was able to take that first step because of the trust that she had in her guide runner. If she was not able to trust her guide runner and have the partnership that she had, would she have been able to take that first step? It is because she believed that her guide runner would teach her how to ski, 
navigate her through the course and take her onto winning the competition that she followed her guide's voice and movements every step of the way. When I look at the relationship that Mrs. Yang has with her guide runner, I think about the relationship that we have with God. The man who was blind from birth that is introduced in John chapter 9 symbolizes all of us who have been born as sinners. All of us are not able to open our eyes and see what is in front of us without the help from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ opened our eyes. He became our eyes for us to see. The reason why we are able to take that first step as believers is the trust and faith that we have in Him. It is the closeness of our relationship with Him that determines how successful we will be at the end of our life in faith. We need to be trained in our lives so that we go when He tells us to go, stop when He tells us to stop, go back when He tells us to go back, and turn when He tells us to turn. Psalms chapter 18 Verse 35 and 36 say, You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here. I find my rest Without you I fall apart You're the one That guides my heart Lord, I need you
precious in Oh God, how I need you Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is More Than You Can Imagine on Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. We began a series that is a topical series entitled More, Recalibrating Our Hearts to the Glory of God. Now, I think most of us, when we think about more, uh, we think to ourselves, I want more of all sorts of things. In fact, there's no limit to the number, the litany of things that I would love to have more of. Problem is, is that we live actually in a culture that is full of all sorts of isms that actually shape us in ways that might be imperceivable to us. Uh, in other words, there are all kinds of cultural influences that you are hit by day in and day out that are actually shaping your soul. So for instance, materialism, uh, that, that ism that says that basically all that matters in this world is matter. That all that you should care about is comfort and the things that are physical of this world. That shapes us. It tells us that the spiritual world does not matter. Or what about consumerism? That ever so popular teaching that says that really what this life is about is just getting more stuff. And so between those two, as they start to bombard our hearts and our souls, what we start to feel and believe and think is that all that really matters in this world is stuff and getting more stuff, and we don't really look to the spiritual world. But as we look to the Bible, what the Bible says is, is that actually there is a spiritual world that is far more important and influences and shapes this material world. But left to ourselves... And those influences, uh, we are really much like that original material boy, Judas, who sold Jesus for pocket change. Uh, We can relate to Adam, who gave away his relationship with God for a piece of fruit. So maybe you're asking, when you think about guys like Judas and Adam, you think to yourself, because we tend to be a little bit cocky, how in the world did Judas and Adam make such bum deals with God? I mean, what a loss, right? Giving up so much for so little. I think that there was something in them that caused them to do that. And it's the same kind of thing that's in you and me. They wanted more. That's why they did it. And we are all by nature appetitive creatures fashioned by God with eternity in our hearts. We have an insatiable appetite for more. And catch this. I'm arguing this morning that that desire that you have in your heart for more is actually basic to what it means to be human. Something that God made you with. And so even in Christ, as we take on His easy yoke, we have all sorts of longings that will not and should not be satisfied in this life till Jesus gets back. So our first spiritual gasp for air at the new birth, when we are brought from spiritual death to life, uh, we immediately experience spiritual hunger for the food and the housing that only God can provide. That come locked and loaded with that. If you're a spiritual being, you have desires for more given to you by God. Now, I'm not the only one that's noticed this. Uh, You probably have heard the famous quote by C.S. Lewis in that book, Weight of Glory, where he writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the nature 
of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. Let me ask you this morning. Do you think that you might struggle with being far too easily pleased? See, the Bible is chock full of texts that beg you to want more out of both this life and the life that is to come. And so we're going to look at Paul's prayer this morning in Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, 14 to 20. And let me just warn you. We're settling for less than what God would have for us. And here's the deal. One of the top reasons I believe that we settle for less in this life is that we underestimate God. We underestimate Him. His power, His wisdom, and His goodness. So put your seatbelts on. Because Paul doesn't pray small prayers to a small God. We're going to see that we should pray and live out of the confidence that God can actually do more than we can imagine. But we're going to begin this morning with my first point, which is don't settle. And I'm going to kind of Jesus juke you a little bit because we're going to be in Acts before we go to Ephesians. Acts 19, 18 to 19, that's the verses I'm going to be pointing to in a minute. But I want to just catch you up to speed as far as how Paul has a relationship with this church in Ephesus that he's writing you to. And I think that's going to help us appreciate Paul's message all the more. Now, you'll remember that Paul went and preached for two and a half years at the city of Ephesus, which, if you don't know geography and history, Ephesus was one of the top three Greco-Roman cities at the time. And so uh, think about Rome, big deal, Athens, and then Ephesus. Ephesus had somewhere around 200 to 250,000 people. It was a big, powerful port city. And and what we know about Ephesus is uh, they were a city that had many gods, and they held a Artemis as being their goddess. They believed that Artemis was married to Ephesus, the city, and and that she actually protected them. Uh, They were also really big into magic. We're talking about black magic. These were dark magic practices with magic books and that sort of thing. And what's fascinating here is that when Paul goes in and preaches in Ephesus, uh, we're told in Acts chapter 19 that people were becoming converted. They were becoming converted in such masses that it was completely running the idol-making business into the ground. Now hang with me. The whole city was scared, particularly the businessmen, because they were being put out of business because Christianity was catching like wildfire. And they said, this has got to stop. The idol business is going down the tubes. In fact, it got so bad, people were so enraptured in their faith and confidence in Jesus as Lord, that we're told that they went out in Acts 19 and burned their magic books. And you're thinking, well, what's the big deal with that? I mean, how much could a, a magic book cost? Well, it tells us 50,000 pieces of silver worth of magic books. Now you're thinking, okay, how does that matter? Well, if you think about it this way, Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And these books of magic were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, That would have been 50,000 days worth of wages. This was an extraordinary sum of money that these people said faith in Christ was altogether worth it. Do you think those people might have wanted more than what they had in this world? I think so. And that is the the people, those are the people that made up this church that Paul's speaking to in Ephesians. 
Now, as we look at Ephesians, as we jump in, what you're going to see is, in the book as a whole, it's really broken up into two really nice parts. Uh, The first part is about this extraordinary theology of the salvation that God has brought about in our lives. And the second part points us to how that theology ought to play out in how we live. And so that's exactly what we come to at the end of Ephesians 3 we're going to be today. What you're going to see is, is that we are coming to the end of this section where Paul tells this church, okay, I'm landing the plane on the theology of the glorious nature of your salvation and what God has done for you. And so get ready, because then I'm going to tell you how to live. But before you live, you've got to know who God is, right? And so that's where we are here, is he's landing the plane into this glorious declaration of the nature of God in his prayer. And so that brings us to our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, where we're going to see exactly what it is uh, that God has done. And, And what we're going to see here in verses 14 to 15 is that we are to pray to God the Father who has no equal. So look with me again in Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Here's what it says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay, just stop right there. See, Paul here opens up this prayer. And I don't know about you, but as he opens up this prayer, what is fascinating to me is Paul's description of God as the Father from whom every family in earth and on earth is named. You don't see that kind of description of God very often. And so, if you look through it, you'll notice that some have taken this family to speak of Christians, both alive and dead in heaven. Others have taken this to actually speak of some kind of uh, way that God is equally the Father of all that are living in the same way. But I think it's more likely that this speaks of a general way in which God is a Father who is an authority over all beings, whether heavenly or earthly. Back in Ephesians 3.10, where Paul says that he worked this work through the gospel in verse 10, so that through the church, speaking of a local church, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? Rulers and authorities in heavenly places. They look down, we might think we're a pretty, you know, normal looking, average looking group. Angels and demons look on us and think something nuts is breaking out because God is reconciling us through the power of his cross, not just to God the Father, but to one another. And and that's something that angelic beings are doing. You catch that? We know this because in Ephesians 6, 12, he later calls those rulers and authorities in heaven demons warning us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when he says he's the father of everyone in heaven and on earth, he's saying whether you're an angel or a human, God has all authority. He is an otherworldly kind of ruler. So catch this. Paul begins his prayer, praying, acknowledging that God is the cosmic king who has authority over every being in heaven and on earth. His authority is universal. See, that's, that's really what his naming of every family means. Naming, when he names all these families, it speaks to his ownership over them. In Genesis 2, whenever Adam is created, uh, Adam then later goes and God brings like a parade of animals before him, right? And each animal he gives a name to. 
Now the reason is, is God is declaring to and through Adam that he is his small little king. Under him, the great king. He is reflecting the authority of God as he names each of those creatures. Saying, and you shall rule and have dominion over the earth. You will reflect my glory in the way that you rule and reign. And so when he names those animals, it's showing a kind of authority in the same way that God names every family on the earth, claiming authority over us. And parents still name their children as a symbol of their authority and responsibility for their children. So many Ephesians may, in this context, hang with me, in Ephesus, many outside the church, non-Christians considered Artemis is the goddess and protector of Ephesus, right? She's protecting them in Ephesus. She is the one who protects that city. But Paul here prays to his God as the cosmic king who reigns universally. Do you see that? Artemis, you might have authority in Ephesus, but let me just tell you, if you think you have authority in Ephesus, it is a much smaller authority than mine. I'm the king of the universe. And that's the God that Paul prays to. Now, it's important to note three things here. First, Nothing has been made that was not made by God, whether it is seen or unseen forces. And second, God is not the father of all in the same way. Uh, That's clear. But here's the important point that Paul makes. Paul's God possesses unparalleled power and authority. That's the God we as God's children pray to. God is the cosmic king. And third, God names every living family because he's actively engaged in his creation. Now catch this. We, I believe, can learn so much about our view of God and the world through how we pray. See, our our prayers tell us much about how we view and think about God. And I, I believe they'll really be a tell to what our lives look out being lived out for God. So the smaller that God is in your eyes, I believe the smaller your prayers will be. In other words, if you think that your God is only capable of little things, it is probably because we believe that God is small. That His ability, His power, His wisdom, His goodness are limited in some way that is alien to the Bible. And the weaker that God seems to be in your eyes, the less frequent your prayers will be. You you will not see and believe that you actually can take God at His word that we have not because we ask not. So catch this. Paul, great example of the way to begin your prayers. We can learn so much from him. Paul launches into his prayers declaring the cosmic authority of his transcendent God. That's not the climax. That's the beginning point. We start with the big God when we go to him in prayer. We don't work up to sort of talking about what God might be able to do. We begin with the greatness of who he is. Of who he's displayed himself to be. Of who we know him to be. And that's his starting point. So please hear me. A theology. A study and an understanding and a confidence in who God is. The more robust that theology is, the more robust your trust will be. A theology that's robust leads to trust. That's what the scriptures say everywhere. When God is big, our our prayers will not be small. So you don't start prayers like Paul and ask for less. What does your prayer life say about how you believe and what you believe about God? Does your prayer life begin with a small God and end with small requests because your expectations of God are so small? 
when I look at Paul's prayer, I feel like I need to work on my prayer life. And if it's too small, then the best way to help your prayer life is to fill your mind with the Bible so that God is enlarged in your eyes. See, read scriptures before you pray. If you're looking like, how do I pray better? Start by hearing God's word. Read God's word. See what God's word says about God. Look at the robust picture that God himself gives of himself. And then as you begin to pray, let that direct the beginning of your prayer, praising God for his character that is on display in those texts. We want to begin with what God has said about himself and what we know to be true about him. And then work down to man. We start with God. And we only know how to speak to God after God has first spoken to us, right? Like he tells us this is who I am and how you should think about me and how you should speak to me and what you should ask for and what you should expect. And then once we've heard from God, we speak scripture back to the God who has spoken to us in the scriptures. So the best prayers erupt. Friends, hear me. They erupt out of a heart whose seams are bursting with the Bible. If you want a good prayer life, immerse yourself in God's Word. Listen to Him. And you'll beg to talk back. The best prayers come from that. So, here's my question. What does Paul ask God for? What does he ask God for? Well, third, he prays that these Christians might comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. He says, I've got a big God who can do this. I want you as a finite creature to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Jesus. And we see that in verses 16 to 19. Look there again with me. Hear what he says. He says, beginning in 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he being God may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Paul's going to pray for something incredible for the Ephesians. But before we get there, just take note of one important detail. He makes his request to the cosmic king according to the riches of his glory. Of course, that glory speaks to the essence of what it means to be God so that everything that it is to be God is in his glory. And he's saying, I am asking according to you and all that you are. And God, he is not needy. He is not greedy. The scriptures tell us that he is all sufficient, generous, and the source of every good. And he says, I know there's no limit to the resources that you have my God, my cosmic king. And here's the incredible prayer that he asks for the Ephesians. That they may be strengthened to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. Now, you know that physical strength requires working out. So I've heard. You, you need to hit the gym and eat lots of protein. Am I on the right track? Like, that's how you build muscle, right? That's what we've been told. But Paul says the spiritual strengthening of the inner being actually requires God's work in us. It it takes more than what we can do. It is um, a work that God does in the core of who we are. Now, the purpose of this work at the core of who we are is given in verse 17. He says it is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
Now, this is an interesting word for dwell. There are different words for dwell in the New Testament, but there are different words behind those words. And so this word is different than, say, the kind of tent dwelling word that you would see in John 1.14, where he says that Jesus came and he tabernacled or tent or tented or camped among us. You know, that's temporary housing. This word actually is a different word that speaks to more of a permanence, more of a permanent where he might be at home, that is at the very center of or deeply rooted in the believer's lives. It's this idea of like, hey, he's not just hanging out here. He's not just renting. We have Jesus in our heart in such a way that he's starting to hang pictures, right? That's the image that we get that more and more Jesus is setting up shop in the very core recesses of our soul. And Jesus needs to live in every one of those rooms of our heart. The Holy Spirit strengthens the inner man and woman, resulting in the deep indwelling of Christ in one's heart by faith. The Holy Spirit doesn't just drive us to Jesus. does that. He drives Jesus into us. He wants Jesus deep in our souls. He wants Him having deep influence over the way that we think and what we do and the decisions that we make and the attitudes that we have. So what does Jesus look like? This Jesus that is taking up shop in our hearts? Well, Paul says here in Ephesians and elsewhere, it is love. God has rooted and grounded the believers in love. Take note. Which really, that love that they've been rooted and grounded in points back to something he's already told them in Ephesians 1. Here's how the love of God has been especially put on display in your life. It says in Ephesians 1, chose them, he predestined them, he adopted them, blessed them in Christ, redeemed them, made them a heritage, sealed them with the Holy Spirit, made them alive, raised them and seated them in the heavenlies and placed them equally in the one new person in the body of Christ. You see that love? It is a thick and full and saturated kind of love that has already been shown to them and put on them that they already possess before God. They are loved. And so we love God and others because He first loved us. And what does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God except that we might comprehend that boundless love of Christ in whom all the deity dwells? Do you see it? The Holy Spirit compels us to press into Jesus as the Holy Spirit presses Jesus into us. More Jesus means more love. And Paul prays for us to comprehend that incomprehensible love of Christ. But there's a second thing that we see here for Christians. See, Paul wants us to apprehend the love of Christ as well. He wants us to apprehend the love of Christ which has apprehended us. So we'll talk about the knowledge of God at the end of this series. But for now, I just need to ask you, do you get bored as a Christian with God, with his people, with his word? And sometimes I feel like we contemplate God in a way that, that's not healthy or helpful. And sometimes, you know, I feel like we ease up on the transcendent God. We see him, behold him in the scriptures. And then we're just kind of like, Yeah, just kind of not feeling it today. And so I guess it must be God's fault for not being awesome enough. Or it must be other Christians' fault for not being, you know, what I need. Or this musician's fault. Got to be somebody's fault. It can't be me that has a problem with God, right? And yet what the Bible says is that when we are not driven towards God, 
we are not responding to the, the vastness of the glory of God, it really actually is most likely a problem with our own hearts. See, we read a little Bible, we pray a little prayer, or sometimes we even work hard at relationships and we just want to give up. But the real problem might not be the difficulty of the work, but our comprehension of God's love. The key issue, the fundamental issue spiritually with us might be that we have not comprehended afresh the love of Christ for us as made clearly on display in the Bible. So grasping the incomprehensible, let me warn you, it's not easy. It takes faithfulness and it takes work. You have to grasp and you have to build a grip through spiritually being faithful to God's word and pursuing him even when it's hard. Could it be this morning that you're bored with God because your love has grown cold? And that's because you are not working at grasping the gospel with the fresh hope that His mercies really are new every morning. If you distance yourself from the boundless love of Christ, well, hear me, God's Spirit moves in us, but it is a work to study God's Word. It's a work to behold the glory of God. It's a work to love other sinners. It's a work to pray. It's a hard work. But the cosmic king, hear me, here's the promise in this verse. The cosmic king promises to meet you in that work. We need the Spirit to help us in this because we are little leaky buckets trying hard as we might to contain the ocean of God's love. It's a big task and only with the help of the Holy Spirit can we do that with our little leaky buckets. But friends, we have God's help. And there's a final thing that we see here. And that's in verses 20 to 21. That God can do more than you can imagine. Look in verses 20 to 21. As you're trying to to think about, how do I get excited about prayer? How should I approach prayer? These are some encouraging verses. Here's what Paul says as he closes out this half of the book. He says, Now to him, giving praise to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, who had all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul closes out his prayer and the first half of Ephesians with this glorious doxology that declares it doesn't matter how great your IQ is, how creative you are, but God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. It's not just that I'm going to ask this of God and I should expect that He can do more. No, Paul says you need to expect that God can do Far more abundantly than anything that you ask or imagine. We need to recalibrate our ask to who God is. The cosmic king. Doesn't matter what you anticipate that God is able to do. He can do more. And not just a little more. He can do far more. And so in verse 21, we are part of displaying God's eternal glory in the church and in our relationship to Christ Jesus. But notice that before he drops down into what God is able to give, he begins with what God has already given. A love that has been deeply rooted in us and that we have been founded on. In other words, we are saturated with the love of Christ. And that love is a sacrificial love that seeks the glory of Christ and the good of Christ above even our own good. Because we know that that's what we made in Christ love more, is the glory of God. And enjoying that glory. And so... We need to be careful. If we are in love with what we drive, we might not be driven by the love of Christ that roots and grounds. See, I I want to make sure that we understand that this isn't a prosperity gospel message. You might be leaving out of here thinking like, great, now I've got like permission and warrant by the pastor. I need to go ask for a really nice car and lots of money, right? Because he can do more than I can dream or imagine. 
Well, you know that the prosperity gospel, it's that gospel that's all about naming it and claiming it. And here's where the prosperity gospel is so bankrupt. It begins with what we desire, usually material possessions, and then turns God into a bellhop for what we want. And here's the the nightmare that I've seen over and over again in that system. When God fails, which is what they would say, it's because your faith is broken. I've named it and claimed it. God didn't do it. Well, the problem is with you because your faith isn't sufficient. And if it's not sufficient for a new car or something like that, then how is it sufficient for something like salvation of my soul from sin? Right? See, that's not what Paul means here. No, Paul, when he says God is able to do far more than we can ask and imagine, in the context, he's just talking about, like, for one, I want you to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. Like, that's amazing. If you get your mind wrapped about uh, around that, that's enough to keep you busy for the rest of eternity. But if God can do that, and he can, the sky is the limit. So sometimes I'm just worried that we as conservative Christians get locked into small visions of what God can do and pray small, attainable prayers in the name of discernment and wisdom. When God's Word says that He can do far more than anything that we ask or imagine. So what I want to encourage you to do this morning, and really to do throughout the rest of this series, and really for the rest of your life, is let's not settle for praying worldly prayers, but let's not also be fearful to expect great things of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I want more than perishable goods destined to be eaten by moths and rust. I want some of that imperishable stuff, right? Those treasures that do not fade. Like, that's what my heart longs for. And I want to store up treasures in heaven. And and to see heavenly fruit right now is a foretaste of more fruit that is to come. So do we love what God loves or do we love earthly comforts? Are we willing to settle for less or do we really want the more that God has for us? Are we dreaming about and praying about things that only God can do? Do we really want more of what only God can provide? Or are we settlers? The prosperity gospel's problem isn't that it seeks too much, but too little. I want to serve in the mighty cosmic war of my Father in heaven and see sinners saved. We want more disciples that comprehend the love of God. I want to send out more pastors and missionaries. And let's not call caution wisdom. Let's ask God for more than what we could imagine or ask. I know it can feel like we don't have the resources when we pray for these things, but let's dream more in the confidence that God really is able to do what He says He's able to do. Far more than what we can ask or imagine. And let's ask the Spirit to excite and revive us in ways that only He can and only God would provide the resources so that we might take His love to the nations and do far more than we can imagine trusting that God can not only exceed our wildest fears, but our wildest dreams in serving Him. I'm not here to waste my years for God. We're here for the glory of God. And He has gathered great people to do great things for His name. And our imaginations, friends, they are not the ceiling, they're the basement. For me, I can only imagine 
Any of you are looking to listen to past programs, you can find them on the Heart and Soul homepage. Go to www.heartandsoul.org and find the listen button and then click special programs. You can easily play this week's programs as well as past weeks. You can even download them to your computer. Otherwise, we can send you the past programs as CDs. Please contact us at 602-866-8999 or at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you.
Following is the program called The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. My name is Young and Winston, and you are now listening to our program, The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston. Last week, we shared about Jesus' character and how he does not fall into temptation of a sinning. Yes, if we think about being tempted, we only see it as being tempted to sin. However, the perfect righteous Jesus, who does not know sin, does not have a desire to sin at all. But that does not mean that Jesus wasn't hungry. He was starving from fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Still, he did not have a desire to sin. Even when we look at Adam and Eve, we know that they did not sin because they were hungry. That's right. They did not eat the fruits of the tree of the knowledge of a good and evil because they were hungry, but they weren't tempted, believing the word of a serpent. Right. That's why it's just an excuse that they sinned out of hunger. It is a matter of trusting God's word or not. Jesus always listened to the word of God and lived according to the word. We also looked at the meaning of the temptation Jesus had. There are many words that come into my mind when I hear the name Jesus. And I want to share words that describe Jesus. There are so many words that describe Jesus. Christ, Savior, Lord, Lamb of God, light of the world, truth, way, life, and so many more. Yes, and all of them are correct. It tells us that Jesus is one person, yet he undertook so many rules. Let's focus on Jesus, Lamb of God. Lamb of God, when John the Baptist introduced Jesus, he said, Look the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of a world? Correct. It is written in John chapter 1, verse 29. Most Christians probably heard why Jesus is the Lamb of God. Yes. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, God sent ten plagues, and the last one was the death of the firstborn. Right. All the living firstborn humans and animals in Egypt were killed. God told the Israelites to put the blood of the Passover on their frames so that the angel of death will pass over that house, sparing lives of that house. And by the blood of Jesus, who is the Lamb of the God, death pass over us. Yes, you're right. I also said that there are many biblical figures who foreshadowed the Christ. Yes, you did. Boaz, Joseph, David, Moses, Joshua, and Isaac all were the shadow of Jesus. Right, but not only biblical figures were the shadow of Jesus, other parts of the Bible, such as the law and the sacrifices, also were the shadow of Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it reads, Then beginning with Moses... And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
It is about Jesus explaining the word of God to the two disciples who were heading for Emmaus. Yes, and in John 5.39, Jesus said that the Bible testifies about himself and said the Bible is a recording of Jesus. The Bible Jesus was talking about at the time was the Old Testaments. The reason I'm telling you this is to think about the purpose of the Bible. The biggest reason why I'm bringing this up is that I want us to think why the Bible was written in the first place. The Bible was written because God wanted to tell his people how he will fulfill the salvation for them. It is not for you to die in sin, not knowing anything. I am the creator and the reason for my creation is not for you to die, but to save you. Although you decided to die, I will not leave you to die, but give you a new life, an eternal life. I want that, and I confirmed my work through history that I will carry out of the salvation, and I want you to know that. This is what God is telling us through the Bible. Yes, when I didn't know God, the Bible was hard to understand and felt like it was a list of rules that we ought to follow. But the more I read the Bible and the more I know God, I realize God is God and that He wants to save us. That's right. Just as I mentioned, through the Bible, we see God's work of salvation. God uses not only the characters of the Bible, but also the sacrifices and the laws of the Bible to look at Jesus Christ, whose body is the salvation itself. So it is the Passover lamb that we have just shared. We know that Jesus died as the Passover lamb, but we usually think it's simply symbolic. Symbolic? What do you mean by that? We tend to think that Jesus' crucifixion is similar to the death of the Passover lamb. However, that was not only a symbolic event, but the events that happened to the Passover lamb actually happened to Jesus as well. Oh, really? You mean the time and the way Jesus died is all related to the Passover lamb? Yes, we already know well that Jesus is the Lamb of God. But because we are so used to the term, we do not ponder on why Jesus is the Lamb of God. So today I want to share what the Passover lamb was and what relationship lies in between the Passover lamb and Jesus. I want to take a look at some of the characteristics of the Passover lamb from the Old Testament. The Old Testament records the traits of the Passover lamb, and in the New Testament, Jesus showed the traits to show us that he is the true Lamb of God. That is why we have to know the characteristics. Do you know anything about the features of the Passover lamb? It must be without any defect. That is a very important feature. To be free from any defect was a special requirement to be the Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, God explained how to prepare for the Passover. You can see in Exodus chapter 12 verse 2 that the month of Passover is the first month of the year. So it is the beginning month of a new year. Right. It is called the month of uh, Nisan. The month of Nisan, a new year. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, God tells the Israelites to take the lamb on the 10th day of the month. That means to choose the lamb, but not kill. After they are instructed to keep it for four days, 
for four days the Israelites examine whether the lamb is worthy to be the Passover lamb, inspecting for any defects. And if it proves to be good enough, then it will be killed in the evening of the fourteenth day. And the Israelites celebrated Passover on the fifteenth. Oh, there is an instruction on when to choose the lamb? I didn't know that. The Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, was the tenth day of Nisan. It was five days prior to the Passover. It was the same day of choosing the lamb. Does it appear in the Bible? Yes, in John chapter 12, verse 1, there was a story of Jesus going to Lazarus' house six days prior to the Passover. And verse 12 writes a scene of Jesus entering Jerusalem the next day and a large crowd shouted Hosanna with palm leaves in their hands. I will read from John chapter 12, verse 1. Will you read verses 12 and 13? Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. According to God's timetable, God sent the Lamb of God to Jerusalem in the manner of keeping the Passover God has commanded. When Jesus entered, the high priests and scribes, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Herodians appeared to ask questions. It is recorded in detail from Matthew chapter 21 through 22. The high priest asked Jesus, with whose authority is he doing this work? The Pharisees and the Herodians asked if they should pay taxes to Caesar. The Sadducees asked, whose wife would this woman be after resurrection if she had married seven siblings? One teacher of the law asked Jesus, which one is the most important commandment? Jesus answered these questions perfectly so that no one can find anything to reprove Jesus. It proved that Jesus was the lamb without any blemish. Yes, all of them came to test Jesus, but Jesus showed them that he was without defect and was qualified as the lamb of God through their tests. Wow, Jesus was bombarded with questions in Jerusalem for that reason. I should take some time to read Matthew 21 and 22 again. Yes, I encourage you to do so. And also in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, and Numbers chapter 9, verse 12, another characteristic of the Lamb is written. Would you please read them? Exodus 12, 46. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. The Israelites were told not to break the bone. Now number 912. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statue of the Passover, they shall 
absorb it. It also writes about not breaking the bone. I am reminded of Jesus' crucifixion. The two robbers at Jesus' side had their legs' bones broken. But since Jesus was already dead, the soldier did not break his bones. All of those events had its reasons. Now, of course, there was a reason. The Passover lamb's bones not being broken and Jesus' bones not being broken was the fulfillment of Psalms 34, 19 through 20. Let me read it to you. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them broken. Although the righteous Jesus suffered, God's promise to keep and save him was accomplished. That's right. There are many other things that prove Jesus is the Passover lamb. Putting the blood of Passover lamb on door frames is the same as Jesus shedding his blood. And by the blood, the death passes over. Just as the Israelites ate the Passover lamb, we live by eating Jesus' flesh. All these things tell us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. These are more than mere symbolic meaning. Jesus truly became the sacrificial lamb. That's right. He became the sacrifice. His flesh was torn, his blood was shed, and his body became the life-giving bread for us. By the shedding of the blood of the unblemished lamb, our negative condition caused by sin became positive. By his shedding of blood, our sins are forgiven, and by his death, the power of sin was judged, and by his resurrection, the death has been brought to life. We cannot say anything but the amazing grace of God. Isn't it marvelous? It's the wisdom beyond human reasoning. Jesus was the Lamb of God, and at the same time, the Passover bread. Yes. At the Passover table, Jesus broke the bread and say it was his flesh. Yes, he did. The bread also symbolizes Jesus. We call it bread, but the actual bread that Jesus broke is quite different from the ones we normally eat. I had a chance to see and eat the bread and was surprised to see that it was so different from the ones we eat at the communion. Yes, many are surprised to see it for the first time. Most churches buy bread that was baked without yeast, and we often think Jesus also broke a big piece of such a bread. However, that is not the bread Jesus broke apart during the Passover. The bread is called matzah in Hebrew. This matzah is more close to cracker than bread. It is similar to the cracker they give you at a restaurant for soup. Matzah, which Jesus broke and gave to his disciples to eat, for it was his body which had met its requirements for the Passover. So, it should not have yeast? Yes, yeast should not be added. That is why it is called unleavened bread. Yeast stands for sin in the Bible. There must be lines on matzah. Lines? What lines? It's a marking of scraping the matzah. Why did I have to scrape it? It's to prevent matzah from fermenting. 
We might think without yeast, the dough will not ferment, but yeast is actually used to expedite the fermentation. Fermentation happens naturally when air enters the dough. That is why scraping will take out the air from the dough. And lastly, they poked holes in the matzah. It is to suppress fermentation. I am reminded of a Jesus who was whipped and nailed in the hands and feet. Yes, Jesus is reminded along with the word of Isaiah 53. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our inequities. The chastening for our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The prophecy of the Messiah is so exact that as if it was written, One by one after the event took place. Correct. It gives such a vivid detail. He was pierced, he was crushed, he was punished, he was wounded. And all these were plans that were necessary. Yes, he was、uh, pierced for our transgression, he was、uh, crushed for our iniquity, he was、uh, punished. So we can have a peace with God. He was wounded so that we can be healed. These words come as such grace along with the words that describe Jesus as the Passover lamb and living bread that was torn for us. It's amazing to see that every plan of God has meaning. Just as I mentioned at the beginning of today's program, The Bible is the book that tells us how God wants to let His people know of His salvation, how God has fully prepared His salvation, and how God keeps His promise of salvation from the beginning till the end. I have a feeling that not reading the story of salvation is like deserting God's grace. I agree. If we truly understand and know the salvation and the eternal life as a proof, We will keep the Bible close to us. I wish that we will be able to know more deeply of God's plan of salvation through the Bible. Yes, I believe that, and we'll continue to pray for it. Through today's program, The Goodness of the Gospel, we studied about the relationship of a Passover lamb, Jesus, and Matzah. I hope that we can meditate. About the salvation that is given by his blood. This is the end of today's program. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you next week.
This visually impaired athletes must open their ears and concentrate their best to hear every word of the guide runner in front of them. If they lose even one word, it can lead to them failing and losing the competition. 
How well do we listen to everything that God tells us? How well do we follow His commands? Do we even believe that God will lead us to success in our lives of faith? Have you ever thought that the reason why we don't follow all the commands that God gives us is because we don't have that faith inside of us? We must follow all the words that God gives us. It is the only way that we will have success and win at the end of our lives. We must open our ears and listen to every word that God tells us. I want to leave you with the words from John chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace Savior, I come.